This is an Odyssey original. This is KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. Well, if you don't believe me, go ahead and Google it. Google is going up against its biggest challenger yet, the U.S. government. We'll go in-depth into a big monopoly trial next week that is going to reverberate around the tech and corporate worlds. Hollywood writers and actors are looking for unemployment money, but should they be the only ones who get help? Also, we're going to talk to a music executive who is using his cancer diagnosis to help people of color better navigate the healthcare world. But we start with the U.S. government's big monopoly case against Google. George Hay is a Cornell University professor of law and economics, as well as the former director of economics for the U.S. Department of Justice. George, thanks for being with us. Sure. So tell us why this particular trial, uh, the U.S. versus Google, I guess is its official name. Uh, why is this having, uh, uh, you know, sort of fits of concern in the corporate suites of Google? Well, because the stakes are pretty large. I mean, uh, if Google loses this case, they'll be forced to uh, make certain significant changes in their business. Now, this may come about anyway because other jurisdictions around the world are also looking at some of the same tactics. But this is a big deal for Google. Uh, and indeed, probably more importantly, if they're found guilty in this case by the government, it opened up the, opened up the door to private cases, uh, which then can involve a lot of money. So when I look at the stuff I have and that I use on my computers, uh, a lot of it is either it's either in the uh, alphabet, Google world, or it's in the Apple world. So if they're going after Google, Apple would be next, wouldn't it? Well, Apple is actually part of this case. Uh, the real claim is that uh, Google has signed agreements with Apple uh, that make Google the default search engine. So Apple is very much a part of this case. Uh, there may be other issues about Apple for other reasons. Apple's been in some difficulty involving their Apple store. There's a big case in California brought by Epic Games, and it, it was a sort of a mixed result. Uh, Apple won a lot of the claims, and Epic won some. But Apple is very much at the part of this trial. And indeed, I think there's going to be a lot of interest in close examination of the Apple witnesses to see if there's more going on than simply monetary payments to Apple, for example. Was there a quid pro quo, quid pro quo that if uh, that Apple wouldn't start their own search engine? Uh, uh, now we don't know that, uh, but I think the Apple witnesses are going to be under some serious cross examination. I, I I'm probably going to grossly oversimplify this, but is essentially this case making the argument that Google lied, cheated, and broke the law in order to get to where it is? Is that basically it? I think I take out the lie and cheated. I mean, I, it, it strip away some of the rhetoric. The simple claim is that Google paid a lot of money to Apple and, and, and Chrome, basically, to be the default search engine. And that made it very difficult, if not impossible, for other search engines to gain some foothold. This is not, you know, it's not a, a, a deep cloak murder mystery. Uh, now, all these are allegations. Uh, but if the allegations are proven, uh, then the consequence may be that uh, Google will have to terminate these arrangements, possibly opening up opportunity for other search engines. 
I think Google, uh, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a lawyer working for Google, but I would imagine part of their argument is going to be that, well, yes, uh, Google search is the default option when you download Chrome or uh, uh, you know, any of that suite of uh, browsers, you can go in and change it to something else. Uh, is that a good enough argument? Uh, it can has a variety of meanings. How easy is it to do? How often uh, does it happen? If the reality is that consumers, maybe it's just because of inertia, if the reality is consumers don't make the change, rarely make the change, almost never make the change, then the fact that Google paid Apple and Chrome for this uh, this priority makes a big difference in the outcome. And if you're undoing that, those payments uh, can perhaps uh, reset the competitive balance. All right. Thank you so much. That is... Uh... And speaking of computer stuff, we're getting our own computer stuff coming through the board. I don't know where that's coming from. Maybe maybe Google is trying to oh, reach out and Google tell us something. is uh, clamping down on us. That yeah. was uh, George Hay, Cornell University professor of long economics, as well as the former director of economics for the U.S. Department of Justice. Still ahead, a cancer diagnosis now has a music executive trying to improve health care for communities of color. He's here to share his story. Right now, though, Hollywood writers and actors have rallied to support a bill in Sacramento that would allow them to collect unemployment while they are on strike. Actor and SAG-AFTRA member Jeff Torres is with us, as is Linda Bredeman. She is the owner of a walk-through-time vintage and costume annex in Thousand Oaks. Both of you, thanks for being with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank, thank you, you for having us. It's, thank you so much. So let me let me start, Jeff, with with you. Uh, and I'm presuming, and correct me if my presumption is wrong, that you're in favor of being able to receive unemployment compensation being on strike. Is that right? That presumption? Uh, yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? You, you have to think like the, the language is if you leave a job, then you're ineligible uh, to receive unemployment benefits. But, you know, if you're leaving the job because your employer is trying to replace you with machines or the, their wages well, are no longer livable wages and you are a part of the union and part of the union is that their their order is that the members strike this suddenly is no longer really a choice i think if you told the average person like would you want to keep working for a company and you're not making enough money to pay your rent i think i don't know if you're negotiating with that person and they have all the power that they can just starve you out it seems like what the government is doing by not helping striking workers is they're taking the side of corporations and saying that, you know, we don't deserve to survive a strike so that we can get equ equitable wages. Well, well so, but, yeah, Je but Jeff, but doesn't it, but, but isn't it, isn't the opposite true too, that, that if, if the government in effect, in this case, it would be the state of California were to give striking workers uh, unemployment compensation, uh, aren't they then taking the side of the workers uh, against the people who own the businesses who have their point of view too. Well, I guess that that's actually funny that you say that. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, as far as I understand, the government is to protect the people. I, I think that's like the people are, and we are the people. So I, I think that's the idea that I'm glad that you said that. That's exactly correct. I mean, if 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 the government has a function, it is to protect its citizens. And whether or not legally now corporations are considered citizens or not, I think if it comes down to it, there are more. Uh, working laborers than there are uh, corporate leadership. So I, I think, yeah, that, that seems like a uh, uh, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, I guess, is kind of what that would be, right? 
All right. Uh, Star Trek reference. Thank you. Uh, Linda, (laughs) uh, uh, let me ask you this. As a business owner, obviously, uh, I would presume that you have been affected by the strike. Uh, Your business uh, has been impacted by actors and writers not being able to work because they're out on strike and uh, the the, uh, media companies not being able to produce more content. So you lose out on work. What do you think about this? Should they get unemployment benefits for being out on strike? Um, well, it, it, it depends. It's a two, two-edged sword. It's great if they could get it, and, and if there's enough surplus, then sure, there's that. But where, where does it go? Do the actors and the writers get it, but the, the uh, electricians on the set and the food provider on the set and the costumers on the set, like us, we don't get it? You have to know what level, if they're going to do it, how how deep are they going to go? Because we're all impacted by it. Um, you know, it, it's it's a great idea. I wish I wish it would happen, but I don't see that there's a logistical or logical way to do it. Because yeah, you got a writer and you got an actor. They're going to get money, but the guys who are doing the lighting and the sound and the film editing and and all of that, they're not. So you've got to know what level. If they're going to propose this, what level is it going to go to? Well, um, well, well stop there for a second. Uh, Jeff, she raises a really uh, good point. And, and, and the point is, you know, you're talking about if you're on strike, you're kind of forced into that position. And so because of that, uh, you should be getting unemployment compensation. Well, take somebody. Well, I, I wait, 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 wait. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, oh, wait, wait, wait. Let me finish the question. But sorry, but sorry. but what what Linda is pointing out is uh, take somebody like Linda. Now she owns a business yes. that makes its its living through you know, the entertainment industry. She's Absolutely. losing, you know, I don't know how much money she's losing, but presumably she's losing some money, maybe a lot of money, because mm-hmm. of the strike. If anyone is an involuntary person losing income, it's somebody like Linda. I mean, she has nothing to do with the strike. She's totally an innocent victim. She's not getting any kind of compensation. That doesn't seem fair, does it? No, that's absolutely not fair. And, and I think actually, I, I, I'm not sure. And I guess, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if, if you are unemployed. Unemployment is something you can claim. So like if for the people that you just mentioned right now, there are no jobs that are happening right now. Therefore, they can claim unemployment like as a regular working actor. When that happens or any job, once you get laid off or your job is terminated, it's no longer there you qualify for unemployment. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. So all of those people you mentioned that are not working are eligible for unemployment. I think the other issue is that the unemployment in our state hasn't been raised in what, 10, 12 years. So we're, we're, we're essentially uh, getting less money than everyone else. And that money is worth, you know, 50% less with inflation or whatever it is. So that's another issue that, that has to be brought up is $450 is the maximum you can make in California. And yet New York and New Jersey, I believe in Michigan, they're somewhere upwards of $900 a week. I mean, if you make $2,000, that's not even $2,000. It's less than that every month. That's not enough to pay rent here. So that's not even a livable wage. So I 100% agree with you. You are you're absolutely right. I believe those employees absolutely they're not on strike. They did not voluntarily leave their jobs. Their jobs got terminated because of the strike. So they are eligible for unemployment as far as I know. And should there be uh, like business loans, kind of like the PP, uh, PPP loans that were happening during the pandemic for businesses being affected by this? Absolutely. A hundred percent. But I, I think like that's not like a mutually exclusive thing. It's not like 
you don't want another fellow person that's being squeezed by corporations to have a victory because you're not getting the victory, right? Like, I think a victory for any of us is a victory for all of us. And hopefully that'll help things actually end sooner. Uh, that's that's my opinion. I mean, I don't know. Uh, that That's just as far as I can see it. All right. Uh, actor and psych after member Jeff Torres there. Also, uh, Linda Bretterman, owner of uh, Walkthrough Time Vintage and Costume Annex in Thousand Oaks. And a little bit later in the show, we will talk to a rising music uh, industry executive about surviving cancer at a young age and what he found out when it comes to health care treatment and people of color. Right now, though, more water cuts could be on the way for people across the state if a new plan's adopted. It's called Making Conservation a California Way of Life. This now is Eric Oppenheimer, Deputy Director of the State Water Resources Control Board. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. I can tell you that a lot of people are going to hear that and they're going to react this way. We just had a tropical storm. We got uh, more moisture and drizzle and rain perhaps on the way. Uh, why are we talking about cutting our water? Well, uh, great question, and it's great to have, uh, you know, coming off the heels of an excellent water year, having this extra precipitation is welcome. But um, what the state water board is in the process of doing is moving forward with adopting a regulation for long-term water use efficiency. It's part of the Making Conservation of California way of life legislation that was passed in 2018 and really what we're doing here is looking at the long term and the big picture Uh, we know that climate change is going to make it more difficult to manage the state's water supplies and actually reduce the amount of water the state has available and water conservation in the urban setting is one tool that we have to help address our future needs and by being more efficient Uh, we believe the state will be just better positioned to address these water supply challenges that we know climate change is is bringing already. What sort of changes are needed, do you think? Well, um, the way our regulation works is, and and this was all set up by, again, by the 2018 legislation, um, but what we're doing is, putting forward and um, eventually adopting a set of water efficiency standards that apply to indoor and outdoor water use. And each water supplier will be using these standards to develop a budget that's unique for their service area, and they'll be required to meet that budget. The way they go about doing that is really going to depend on the needs of their service areas and different actions that each supplier thinks they can take. Right, but let me then cut to I the mean, ch- but let me cut to the chase then, because I think what people want to know is what is the impact going to be for them? Uh, is it going to be something that people who live in California are going to notice, and how will they notice it? Yeah, well, first off, um, and this wasn't clear, I, I just want to make it clear that these these regulations would apply to the state's uh, 400 largest urban water suppliers. They're not state regulations or mandate on you know individual households or individual right. people. Right. Now, having said that, though, I mean, if, if a water supplier has to reduce water use to meet its uh, its objective, they're going to have to take actions within their service area that will affect people. And so... You know, in our assessment, some of the easiest ways and probably most effective ways to get there are transitioning from heavy water use outdoor um, outdoor landscapes to more water efficient landscapes, things that we already see a lot of Californians already doing, 
using more efficient plumbing fixtures like shower heads and toilets and um, implementing, you know, just other actions that can help uh, reduce individual water use. But again, it will be up to the suppliers um, and the regulations not, um, is, it's not a mandate on individuals. I know that during the height of the drought, a lot of people in my neighborhood, they got rid of their lawns and they uh, put in, you know, concrete or rock gardens or what have you. Uh, was that enough to help? And so we still need more help? That helps a lot. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily advocate for putting in concrete or pure rock um, just because it, it, you know, can increase heat island effect and things like that. I did something similar myself where, you know, I took out my front yard, which was turf, and replaced it with uh, more California-friendly drought-tolerant uh, landscaping, which saved a lot of water and also provided, you know, a great outdoor space and um, actually good habitat um, for insects and butterflies and things like that. And so we definitely advocate for more of that. There's still a lot of turf in the state, and some of that turf is totally acceptable and needed, right? We need turf for sports fields and for places where community gathers gather. But if, if people and institutions have turf that essentially nobody ever uses except to mow the grass, we think there's huge opportunities for water savings by converting those landscapes. And not only will it save water, but it can provide other benefits like stormwater capture and, and treating runoff and things of that nature. All right. Thank you so much, Eric Oppenheimer, Deputy Director of the State Water Resources Control Board. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Music executive and USC instructor Jonathan Azu was in the middle of building an entertainment empire just a couple of years ago. Uh, he was a two-time Billboard 40 Under 40 power player while running his company Culture Collective. And then he found out he had prostate cancer. Now, the diagnosis led him to some discoveries about healthcare treatment and disparities faced by people of color. Jonathan Azur is with us now in the studio. Welcome, Jonathan. Also with us is Dr. Clayton Lau, director of City Hope's Prostate Cancer Program. And, Doctor, I think you were uh, Jonathan's doctor, yes? Surgeon. Surgeon. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I was. Yes, you were. Okay. Pleasure uh, taking care of them. Thank you. All right. So thank you both. Uh, let's start off with you, Jonathan. So briefly tell us what happened to you from a medical point of view. Yeah. You know, um, sadly, and unfortunately, prostate cancer has been around my family for years. My father had metastatic prostate cancer. His brother, my uncle, had metastatic prostate cancer. Uh, my father ended up having a prostatectomy um, and uh, unfortunately passed away of unrelated causes. But my uncle was diagnosed and in, in, in dead within a year. Um, and so it's always been around me. My mother is an ad- patient advocate at heart and encouraged me as I entered my 40s to pursue a, a PSA um, uh, test, test yes, right. right, as a baseline, yeah. not to determine whether I had cancer, just to set a baseline. So going forward, we would know if there was any spikes off that baseline. And I encouraged my my then primary care physician to have that done, somewhat resistant just because of my age group. Unusual to have somebody in their early 40s come in and ask for this test. But he went ahead and ran it, and the results came back with an elevated number, ran it again, again an elevated number, and then set my course <laughs> into my cancer journey, which eventually uh, resulted in getting into City of Hope and getting to meet Dr. Lau, uh, going through multiple biopsies, and then the end result uh, treatment options, which we went ahead and, and went with a uh, robotic-assisted prostatectomy. 
And uh, how did some of that treatment uh, work out? How did it go? Uh, what did you have to do? What was it like? How did your day-to-day life change? I would say my day-to-day life changed from diagnosis really around finding out that, one, you have it, and then there's the journey into how do we want to approach this. Uh, in my particular case, it was not immediate surgery. It was let's watch this under what we call active surveillance. And after a year of active surveillance, I had a repeat biopsy, which led us to we need to intervene here and, and take action on it. Um, at that point, you have a, a series of options. One of those options is to do nothing, right? Sure. You know, as my mother would say, you know, d- doing nothing is, is, an, is a decision within itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Dr. Clayton Lau and the team at City of Hope, and I like to say gave me and my family because it's a, it's a family disease, right? When you think about it, your whole family's impacted by cancer, gave us the options. And for me, surgery was, was the best um, option to help really hopefully – it hopefully guarantee the, the longest life expectancy. Now, let me ask you something, and, and, and the doctor, thank, thank you, doctor, for being patient, and I will get to you, Rob, and I, I, I want to clarify at least one thing, because we said leading into you, Jonathan, that this diagnosis and your kind of journey through it uh, led you to have some kind of, I guess, your own epiphany or discoveries, right, about the disparities of treatment. Uh, that affect people of color. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? And then I'd like to get the doctor's view on that. But but what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Um, you know, I'm of color. I'm, I'm yeah. African American myself. And uh, you know, when you when you're diagnosed with something, as anybody that, that can empathize with this, you start to go through the 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 black hole of Reddit <laughs> and then Google, and you start doing your own independent research. So, which is always a danger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Doctor Lau will tell you. I'm sure he he faces that every single day. But yeah. at the same time, it also opened my eyes to just more studies that because you end up doing a lot of research around yourself. So you end up searching black male early 40s, mid 40s, 40s. You start trying to find that article or that scenario Mm -hmm. that you live within to understand it. And a lot of research articles were popping up about the uh, diagnosis rates uh, around men of of color, along with the mortality rates of men of color. And they were all off the charts. And I started to try to unpack as to why that's the case. Um, And there's still, you know, there's some still some unknown reasons as to why is it is it genetic or is it disparities, meaning that uh, people of color just being diagnosed late, therefore treated late, therefore having a high mor- higher mortality. Hmm. And doctor, uh, very quickly before we take our first break here, uh, what do you make of that uh, with people of color having this high incidence of uh, problems with prostate cancer? Uh, what do you think it might be? You know, it's a multifactorial. I think, you know, it's a number one, um, access to health care, access to screening, um, you know, also env- environmental. So, um, nutritional, um, you know, there's a lot of studies regarding, you know, having red meat and poor diets to prostate cancer and colon cancer. Um, so there's, it's really multifactorial, uh, that we see it's, it's, it's certainly, um, certainly with that being African American, it's a higher chance of finding prostate cancer and also the time of diagnosis, having higher grade disease. Doctor, uh, let me go back to you on this issue of disparity of treatment. Do you suspect, or is there any evidence, perhaps, that patients of color get either more aggressive or perhaps uh, better or taken more seriously uh, treatment by physicians who are not of color? 
or if they're if the physician is of color, do they tend to be more aggressive in their treatment? You know, I th- there really isn't much studies in terms of um, you know the physician's race and how they choose to treat their patients. Frankly, there's just more studies on access to screening and access to healthcare. Um, but we do know also for African-Americans, they're more likely to present with you know, what we call stage four cancer. So the, you know, metastatic disease. Um, so, I mean, that's pretty consistent uh, throughout uh, the United States. And uh, Jonathan, you know what, we were uh, during the break off the year and we were kind of having a discussion amongst ourselves about uh, it's a squeamish topic for some. They hear prostate cancer. I don't want to talk about that. I want to think about that. But that could be part of the issue with uh, uh, certainly in communities of color not wanting to confront the issue. And could do you think that could be part of why it's affecting communities of color so much? Absolutely. You, you can't treat cancer if you don't if you don't know you have it, uh, and ultimately, uh, if if you're not getting in and getting your screenings because you either want don't want to deal with it, you don't want to talk about it, um, you get it gets caught late stage and and it, it just becomes a harder game at the end of the day. I mean, I'm blessed too of of you know my cancer was caught early, um, it was treated. I, I'm lucky to not have had to needed any follow up treatment. As you get later in stage. You know your options get very limited. What do you think you learned from your own experience? It's a great question. You know, I I learned how lucky I am. Um, uh, City of Hope is a is a cancer facility, so when you're doing your appointments there, um, when I was treated there, I spent the night there to recover. I interacted, saw, walked by people that either are going to be there longer than I was, or potentially not go home. And that that is, I still have those images in my head of those that I, I had walked by. And for me, it changed me because I'm here today. Ultimately, uh, I could have walked forward and been a cancer survivor and gone on about my day, or I could be a cancer survivor and tell my story. And if there's just at least one person out there that hears this and says, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to get screened. I'm going to start the process and, and do that annually. And if I save somebody's life, you know, it's, it's, it's well worth it. It's all well worth it. When you face something that could potentially kill you and survive, does that make life brighter for you? Do things taste better? Does music sound better? Do paintings look more beautiful? Yeah. I, you look at things a little bit differently, you know. Um, I still think I carry a smaller cross than others. You know, there's 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 people I know that have had this disease that had a much tougher road than than I. So things, you know, I I've gone on on with my life, you know, and and, and I have two small boys, uh, five and nine, who don't know their grandfather and and don't know their uncle. So that that has resonated with me the most, and that was also part of the treatment decision. Uh, just thinking about my children and wanting to be there for their children. Uh, that perspective has changed a bit, but ultimately I, I just still think about those that again, get, get diagnosed later along the line and have less options. Um, I think life for them is much different than it, than it is for me. Doctor, he mentioned, Jonathan mentioned uh, about when he first went to his, uh, I guess, general practitioner. Um, the doctor was not enthusiastic. Is that fair to say about doing the PSA test? 
Correct. He, he kind of was reluctant to do it because you were not fitting neatly into a particular age demographic group that tends to have prostate cancer. Um, but that is a, a problem, is it not, doctor? And not just for younger people, but, uh, you know, there, there's so much controversy about PSA tests and whether or not it leads to unnecessary treatments. And, and the treatments in that case could sometimes be worse than just, uh, you know, observing something for a period of time. Do doctors need to learn something about the experience of people like Jonathan? Oh, absolutely. I think the this, uh, you know, there's a controversy that exists for all screening, be it for, for breast cancer, colon cancer, and for prostate cancer. But really, it's a matter of how to how we use that information in screening. Uh, it doesn't, you know, for prostate cancer specifically, I think it's it's very valuable to to get PSAs for pay, for all men. Uh, then for those that have a first-degree relative or people at a higher risk for genetic reasons or racial um, uh, disparities, it's important to get at least, you know, initial evaluation. doesn't mean that you have to continually get yearly exams, but getting an early test will certainly find the ones that are most potentially have the most aggressive tumors and treating them early may affect them and save them. But what should a patient do who they go to their doctor for their yearly physical or whatever, and they say, doctor, I think I should get a PSA test. Uh, Yes, there are other tests too, but let's confine it to the PSA test. And the doctor says, nah, you know what? You look pretty healthy. You're 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 a young man. Uh, Don't waste your money and time on it. What do you tell the doctor? You know, I think, you know, I think you're going to see that quite often, you know, and data always changes. Even how we set our guidelines, that changes over time. And so many physicians uh, don't follow the most current guidelines. I think as an individual uh, person, uh, a man or woman who's thinking about screening, I think you have to kind of be, you know, really think about what's best for yourself. And that might require you to kind of kindly, you know, educate the physician or maybe even seeking another physician um, and speaking to them about going through that process. Um, but this is this is something that's going to happen. And, you know, a lot of medical data changes so rapidly um, and many physicians uh, are now practicing for a long, you know, much longer. <laughs> um, so, you know, sometimes it's hard to keep up with which, you know, what's the best screening practices um, at, at the current time. Mm. Don't, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, something I thought a lot about uh, when I was going through my, my process is, is uh, you know, there, if there's a, 0.02% chance that you would have cancer or maybe even less than that uh, and you choose not to do a screening because of that. Well, remember, if you do get diagnosed with cancer, it's 100% of you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> have, have you, I'm curious, though, uh, Jonathan, are you now a, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, have you become a, a more pushy patient with your experience? Uh, when you go to a doctor, do you get your sort of mindset that you want them to explore something, maybe it has nothing to do with prostate cancer, but whatever. And if your doctor is hesitant, have you found yourself now to be more kind of insistent? I think it's important to to find a a a, a, a kind of a medical team, if you will, of, uh, that wants to be a team member. And and if anything, I look for people in my medical sandbox that are team members. One of the harder things that I experienced as a patient at City of Hope was the fact that I was given options in a discussion about what I wanted to do versus here's what you here's what we're we're going to do 
And that does put a lot of weight on you as an individual and your family. But at that point, you are essentially a part of the team Mm -hmm. and you're asking for information so you can make that decision. So I think the the one thing that I, I would say I'm pushy about is just making sure that it's a collaborative approach. Uh, cause for some people, you know, in my particular case, I was done having children. That's a conversation my wife and I had. It's a very real thing, you know? And, um, we had to have that conversation because ultimately due to this surgery, that's no longer, that's still an option. There's always options, you know, but naturally it's not an option right. anymore. All right, our guests uh, in studio today, uh, Jonathan Azu, uh, recovering from prostate cancer. Also, Dr. Clayton Lau, director of City of Hope's prostate cancer program, who is Jonathan's surgeon, was with us. That's it for KNX In-Depth today. We'll be back tomorrow.